0: Good morning. Hey, my name is Chris, and I am the pastor here, and uh, I, I said this last week. I want to start by saying, one, welcome, especially if you are new. Um, welcome to our new little church. We started about two years ago, and I feel like God's really been moving in a mighty way here. Um, and if you are new, and I, I said this last week, I had a little bit of a culture change that I want us to do, and I said, um, we are now a church, beginning last week, that's like here at 9.30, 30. And, and that might mean you have to get here at 925 or 920 to get your coffee or your kids or whatever set up. But we, um, we've gone back and forth. Is it just because I'm type A? No, I don't think so. I think it's because, like, we really want to value, like, God. If, if God's here, we want to be on time um, and say, okay, we have 75 minutes to meet with the Lord, at least in this space. And so um, from now on, we just said we are a church that's hungry. I think we are a church that's hungry. And so um, if we're hungry, we want to show that by being in this room um, at 9.30, which might mean getting here a little bit early because we are hungry for the presence of God and we're hungry for what he's doing in our church. Um, and if you are newer to our church, we are, like Stephanie said, we're in the middle of um, kind of like a seven-month, it's not a series, but it's like this large initiative that has all kinds of different topics in the midst of it and we're calling it Wholehearted, so even the song we just sang. And, and it comes from some words that Jesus said Uh, a long time ago but actually jesus was just copying what moses said about a thousand years before him and he was just copying what he felt like the father was saying to him and it's this it's a really famous prayer it's the most famous prayer that jews would have prayed still do pray it's called the shema and shema just means here it's the uh hebrew word for here and the prayer goes like this so jesus would have prayed this uh, early in the morning late at night as father joseph would have taught him this and it goes hear o israel the lord our god The Lord is one. And I'll stop there uh, of the two sentences. So the most famous Jewish prayer that has ever been prayed is, uh, it starts with a theological statement. And it said, there is one God and there is nothing above him. And then it goes into the first command and Jesus said, this is the most important command and it's love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your strength. And so to love the Lord God with all of our heart to a 21st century American like we are is a pretty big deal. But to the Jew, especially the first century Jew, this would have been incredibly profound because the Jews believed, or at least in the first century, everyone believed the heart was the center of everything. It was the center of your emotions, your thought life, your worldview, your body. It was the center of your um, feelings. It was the center of your love. And so um, to be wholehearted to an American is like kind of a big deal. But to be wholehearted in the sense that jesus and moses would have used the word is incredibly all-encompassing and so for the last few months we've been kind of systematically looking at the areas of our heart and that probably is because your pastor's type a Um, systematically going through and saying "Okay, okay this how can this be submitted to jesus how can our worldview be submitted to jesus how can our practices be submitted to jesus and we've been going through and we're starting a new one today but it's all been based around the question what would it be like at the end of this year if you knew, loved, and experienced, Jesus, more than you ever have? What would your life be like at the end of this year if you knew, loved, and experienced, Jesus, more than you ever have? And that's for those of us that might not yet believe in Jesus and those of us that have been following Him for 20, 30, 50 years. What would your life be like, if at the end of this year you knew, loved, and experienced, Jesus more than you ever have? And uh, and we just finished a series um, on Jesus, the characteristics of who he was, who he is. And we're starting a new series, and this one isn't so much on a person, but it's on an organization. And I've talked about this organization before, um, but I'm going to start by just telling you a little bit about it. It started a long time ago. It was started by a bunch of blue-collar workers, but it has exploded in growth. It's crazy. Um, In the last few years, it has added over 65 million people to this organization while only losing about 27 million. So this organization is now becoming just this global empire entity. It's an institution. It's an organization. It's far-reaching. About one-third of the world um, interacts with its main product, its main product. It also has an app, and about 100 million people every year download this app. 100 million people every year. It's the most downloaded app. 92% of Americans own um, one of their products. There's um, all kinds of dark corners that this place is going. The numbers are really impressive for this organization, but what's even more impressive is uh, the philanthropy that they've done. Um, They have started more schools, more orphanages, more hospitals. They've lobbied for prison reform more than anyone else they've started universities they started my alma mater Indiana University go Hoosiers they've started so many different hospitals 13% of American hospitals have been started by this organization it's incredible it's insane all of the ways that they have influenced the world this organization was the first one to really truly empower women This organization is often the first to respond to natural disasters. This organization has done more to end poverty in Latin America, to bring clean water to Africa, to end child hunger in the Middle East, and to end sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. This organization is incredible. This institution has been at the tip of the spear in so many of the great changes in our world. They helped end apartheid in South Africa. They helped end the slave trade in Europe and Africa and North America. These were the people... That were hiding the Jews during World War II. This was the group of people. These leaders were the ones that were at the front of the line in the march for the civil rights. This organization is incredible. It's far-reaching. It's all over the world. It's the most influential organization to ever grace the planet. It's the largest organization to ever grace the planet. It is one of the more controversial organizations to ever grace the planet. But it is the highest justice-seeking organization to ever grace the planet. Now, all kinds of large organizations have made big mistakes, right? We know this. Apple invented Apple Maps. <laughs> you guys remember when McDonald's tried to do salads? It's a joke. And I don't care what the ratings say, Tiger King is just bad for society. Netflix <laughs> made Tiger King. And so all large organizations have at some point made big mistakes. This organization is no different. They've made mistakes before. But man, this institution is incredible. It's amazing. This institution, she is she's beautiful, she's powerful, she's influential, she's always trending. And if you know her, if you really know her, you love her, this institution, of course, is the church. It's the church. This is the church. This is what the church has done throughout history. Not perfect, but man. It is amazing. It's beautiful. The far-reaching influence that this organization has had is absolutely unparalleled. This organization, the church, she has other names. You can call her the, the Bride of Christ the hope of the world, this organization, the church, was what Jesus looked down from heaven and said, "Oh, I, I'd leave this for that. Jesus looked down from heaven and said, I want, I'm going to leave this. I'm going to leave my father's side for that. I'm going to leave for the church. And if it's worth catching the eye of Jesus, I just want to submit to us this morning, it's worth catching our eye as well. If we want to be people that love Jesus, we want to also love the things that Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church. Jesus is crazy about the church. And so for the next four weeks, we're talking about what does it mean to invest in the church? And I want to address the elephant in the room. It's a little self-serving to have a pastor say, you should care about the church. That's true. And I believe there's also biblical precedent and Jesus' influence that would say, oh, no, no, he cared about the church too. See, I care about the church and you should care about the church because Jesus cared about the church and i want to care and i want to love the things that jesus loved and so there are four very tangible ways we're going to go high level to tangible four very tangible ways that we have identified this is what it means to be involved in this church we don't have a membership covenant not opposed to that maybe one is coming but if we do there's going to be four primary areas and it's these we want to be involved if you're looking for a checklist uh where my one's at uh, if you're looking for a checklist of what it means to be involved in the church, at least at this one, it's to be regularly here on a Sunday morning. So great job, all of you, one for one. To be involved not just in a large gathering but in a smaller gathering. We call those house groups. To be giving a portion of our income regularly and generously to the church and then also to be serving the church um, and giving of our talents and time as well. These are the four areas that we've identified and said this is what it means to be committed to this church. Now, we want to be committed to a church because we want to be a part of the big church. And here's the big idea for the next four weeks, is that there is no scenario, there's no scenario where you are fully committed to Jesus and not fully committed to his church. There's no scenario where you're fully committed to Jesus and not fully committed to his church. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be this church or that church, but it means you have to be a part of the church, even the parachurch. So we want to say, if we're following Jesus and he loves his church, we want to as well. Uh, I got a text from Daniel Morris this week. I think he heard this from somebody else, but Daniel um, was at a conference, and he sent me this text. He said, I'm good with God, but hate his church it exists nowhere in the Bible. And uh, I flipped through, he's right. <laughs> True story. And so, again, we just want to love what Jesus loves. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about not the large gathering, but the small gathering. What's it mean to be involved in our church? It means that you are deeply committed to, to these smaller gatherings, we call them house groups, and they are modeled off of house churches. And I'll tell you, um, the moment that I became convinced of these, uh, the moment I became convinced of the house church movement, not just small groups or Bible studies, I was leading, we were in uh, Las Vegas, Catherine and I, and uh, we had just started leading the church that we were a part of, but we were also thinking ahead and feeling like God was calling us to start a church. And so I started talking with church planting organizations and uh, one of them, they said, hey, you know, it looks like you've got the education, the, the experience, the this, the that. They said, but you've never started anything. So we recommend you start a house church in your apartment complex. And this guy, he held my future in his hands. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Hung up. I was like, why would I start a church? I already have a church. Why would I start a small church? I have a large church. And, um, and so I didn't. Until about six months later, my friends, Jake and Zach, they do house church movements all over the world, in Pakistan and Congo and Southeast Asia. And they're like, hey, this is where discipleship's happening. This is how you do church. And I was like, no, no, this is how you do church. And we go back and forth, and I was like, okay, I'm going to start one. Out of spite to Jake and Zach, and out of obligation to this guy named Justin. Justin. I'm going to start one. And so a bunch of our friends had moved into the same apartment complex, including the guy that was standing here, Amari, and his wife Hannah. They were there, and we started a house church, and we started inviting people from the gym, and Einstein bagel across the street, and we started a little house church totally separate from the church that we were all a part of. And um, at the end of, like, I think nine or 12 months, three out of the four people that had joined that church, that small church, had been baptized. And I was hooked. I was like, God, dang it, this actually works. And and, and we were baptizing people in the large church as well, and I was like, man, I don't think it's just this or just that. I became convinced that it's everything, that it's both of those. And it wasn't just we were baptizing new believers. It was also that, like, our friendships and our faith had gone deeper as well. And so that was the moment I became convinced a church with two front doors is the best model of church, at least in an American context. And so that is who we are. That's the origin story, at least for me, with house groups. So I talk a lot about why. And if you're a part of this church, this is going to be maybe a little bit of peeling back the curtain, why we do house groups. If you're new here, I'm so sorry. This is just kind of like a large staff meeting that we're all having, kind of letting go some of the DNA of what's happening here. Uh, But I want to talk about why, and I want to talk about how we do house groups. But first, we will do a little bit of why. And in order to do the why... We've got to wade through about five, it's only five minutes this morning of just painful history, but I promise relevance is coming, relevance is coming, and if you're new here for, in about four and a half minutes, you're going to look to your neighbor and say, I wish we would have gone to Taste of Belgium. I know, I know, I'm so sorry, but for about five minutes, I want to talk about the history of church architecture. I know, I know, it's so awful. I have family visiting out of town too. I'm so sorry that they're here. five minutes. Church architecture history, this is the why of house groups. The early church architecture, the first iteration of it, was not buildings, but it was a first century home because the church from the first to the fourth century was illegal. Rome was in charge. Nero had made that illegal, and all the other emperors of Rome had said, no, we don't do that, and so the only place a church could meet was in a home, and a a sample home might look like that, but at the center of the home, and therefore the center of the church, was a table. Now, Constantine took over Rome, and he made Christianity not only legal, but encouraged. And so that allowed the church to move from the home into basilicas. This is what maybe a post-Constantine church would have looked like from the 4th century to like mid-16th century. And, uh, and it was still basically shaped. Here's an interesting thing about basilicas. They are basically shaped like a home, like an almost large octagon living room. And at the center of the basilica wasn't um, a table, but it was, it was called an altar. It was basically the same thing. And what used to be at the center of the church was a meal, a full-out meal. Now the center of the church was an altar where you had a bite of bread and a drink of wine. And if you've ever been to a basilica, you know this. Even if you're talking to, like, the person next to you, the acoustics are terrible. Like, you can't actually do this in a basilica. There was no teaching. There was no, like, hardcore musical worship going on. It was at the center of the church for the first 1,500 years. The center of the church was an altar or a table, and it was a meal. This was what the church was gathering around. In the 16th century, I think a great change came to the church. It was the Reformation. Martin Luther came in, and he said, hey, I think that the Bible should be available to all of us. We should be engaging with this book, all of us, not just some. And so if you wanted the Bible, which you had access to now, if you wanted the Bible, there were no podcasts, right? There there was no radio. Honestly, you probably couldn't read, so you couldn't even read the Bible for yourself. If you wanted to hear from the Bible, you had one option, go to church. And at the center of the church now, it moves from a table or an altar to a pulpit. And there, there was somebody that was expounding on the Bible in a large setting because people were hungry for... The Bible. And then the final shift that we've seen in church architecture is now the modern church, the theater style. And honestly, as old as this building looks, this and that are basically the same, where the center is now a pulpit. And with the rise of entertainment culture, which isn't all bad, there's uh, been a rise in music or instruments, whether it's an organ or a guitar or a drum set. And so church architecture has shifted over time, where it's gone from at the center of a church was the table and sharing a meal. And now the center of a church is worship corporate worship through the expounding of the word of God and worship through music. Now, our attempt at being a church with two front doors is to basically say this. We want to do both. Because there is we want to recapture some of the beauty of what was old church. We want to recapture some of the beauty and the effectiveness that the church was having around a table. And We don't want to say what's new is bad. And honestly, sometimes we're like, man, the old ways are always the best. Guys, that's not true. You know that. Pasteurized milk, way better than unpasteurized milk. That's a new invention. Pumped for that. Air conditioning in July, amazing. Good idea. About five months ago, it used to be the father that delivered the baby. About five months ago, I leaned into a modern tradition and let an expert called a midwife deliver our baby. Because if it was still on the father, the baby would still be in there. What a bummer. (laughs) guys, not everything that's new is bad, but also not everything that's old is bad. And so being a church with two front doors says, no, we don't just want that or just want this. I wonder if the stars have aligned and we could possibly, maybe, potentially do both. We want to be a church that's both around the table and around the corporate gathering in a space like this. Said very concisely, relevance, we do both because they did both. We are a church that does both because they did both. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day, there was a frequency to what was happening. And they also met in the temple courts, which is a large gathering, and from house to house. So there was a frequency and there was a dichotomy to the early church. Large, small, large, small. Temple courts, house to house. Temple courts, house to house. Sunday morning, house group. We do both. Because they did both. And if we love the early church, we do have to care about one of those front doors. If we love the early church, if we want to be like the early church, we have to be all about the home and the table, because they were all about the home and the table. Romans 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, greet also the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 1 to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow co worker to the church that meets in your house. Now, to be fair, that was all Paul, and some of us are big Jesus, only Jesus, red letters only. It's a new move in Christianity, which I don't think is of God, but if that's you, here's some red letters for you. Matthew 13, then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. Luke 7, Jesus entered the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. Mark 1, Jesus and the disciples came into the house of Simon and Andrew. Matthew 8, when Jesus came into Peter's house. Luke 8, when he came into the house. Matthew 17, when he came into the house. All red letters, all gospel-centered, Jesus and Paul at the center of their ministry was a house and a table. Jesus did some of his best work corporately teaching, but he also did some of his best work around a table with just a few. And so we do both because they did both. And I believe the secret sauce of this church and why I would just argue this church is like working, like it started in a pandemic and like here we are, it's amazing. The secret sauce is not the worship. It's not my teaching. It's not our kids' ministry, although at least a couple of those seem to be pretty good. It's what's happening in our homes. The reason this thing is working The reason that we see people baptized, the reason that we're finding community is primarily because our secret sauce is what happens in our living rooms and around a table and recapturing some of the beauty of the old. And so I want to tell you now, if that's the why, this is the how. How do we do house groups? And this is going to pull back the curtain if you've been in one. Also, if you've never been in one. Here's a little bit of a heads-up of what we do, and we teach this. Mandy, who leads our house groups and I, we teach this, and it's eight sessions long if you want to be a house group leader. Like, we take this really seriously. We say that they are pastors of small churches, not just discussion leaders or Bible study leaders, but they are pastoring small churches, and uh, we're choosing this complexity because we believe that it's worth it. So number one, and these are all based around the four values that Stephanie just shared. The first thing that every house group will do is family. Family. And uh, said in short, we eat together. So if you came over to my house group, it starts at 6.30. And if you're there for the first time, you're like, actually, I think it starts at like 7.15, 7.30. Because that's when discussion starts. But that's not true. It starts at 6.30. When we start to eat a meal and have no agenda for about 45 minutes, maybe even an hour of conversation. Because we are family and we eat together. Number two is mission Said shortly, we empower each person to contribute. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. House groups are the places that that kind of thing happens. House groups are the places that we don't hoard leadership at the top. We say, no, everyone has something to contribute here. Number three is presence. Presence. We let God interrupt. We let God interrupt. So there's always a moment in your house group where there's prayer or worship, and not like praying before a meal, but like prayer, like where we really get into it and we say, God, if you want to hijack this meeting, we're not going to plan you out of it. Please come, Holy Spirit. And every house group leader knows if you've got your questions on John 4, but God starts to move in a moment of worship, it's okay. We might not ever get to the questions because prayer in God's presence is our priority. And number four is formation. It's our fourth value, formation. Said shortly, we're after life change, not knowledge accumulation. So although I hope you win Bible trivia at the next time you play, that is not my goal. That's not our house group's goal. We want to ask everything that we do in a house group. All of our questions are geared around how does this change our life not how can I know more about the Bible, although that's great as well. And so these are kind of the secret sauce of, we don't care what you study in house groups, we leave that up to the leaders and the group. We don't need you to do certain things in a certain order, but what we do say is these are the four things that are non-negotiable, and we're putting a lot of stock in our house groups. Honestly, we've like shoved the chips in from the very beginning and said, we're gonna be a church with two front doors. So we're shoving the chips and saying, we're going all in on house groups. If they don't work, this doesn't work. And what I love is our Sunday mornings, they've been growing really at a pretty quick rate. But our house groups have been growing even faster. It's amazing. We have like 80% of our adults in a house group. It is fantastic. It is the one thing that we've said we can't leave this behind. And in church planting world, I talk to a lot of church planters, and it's like, we've got to change everything. We're going to do everything new. And honestly, some parts of the church aren't broken. But there is one part that we said as a team, no, we're going to go all in for that, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We want to be a church with two front doors. And what I love is it seems like it's working. And if you're not in a house group, I want to tell you our house groups are working. I love hearing stories of our Price Hill house group. They did a retreat a couple months ago. Not because Mandy told them to, not because I told them to, but because I guess they like each other. (laughs) Like they chose to do a retreat on a weekend on a night that they don't meet. I love the story of a Covington group that we started about a year ago and it was mostly all strangers with each other. And now they like hang out on the weekends because I, I guess they like each other. It's incredible. I love my house group. Wednesday we went and we played sand volleyball. And, um, and this is why I, lo- I know this group is for me. The game was 16 to 18 and it started to pour down rain and not one person left. We finished that game. And I lost I know, thank you, Robin. I love my house group. And I, I love, I mean, we have nine of them. I love all of them. I don't have a favorite. But if I did, it would be our young adult house group, our, like, college students. And uh, the, this group, they started um, with Graham and Ashley and Jalen. And they started, and they didn't have a place to meet, so they started in our living room, Catherine and I's living room. And uh, they had a big gathering one time. They called it um, at the end of the semester Friends Give us." Friends Give Mess sounds sketchy. can't believe anybody came. Uh, but they did. Friends Give and, us." Uh, and I remember being there. Catherine and I were trying to leave as they were coming in. And um, as they came in, I met a new girl named Maya. And we have pictures from the first, house, first Friends Give Maya uh, is in the middle of the mirror. That mirror's in our bedroom. I texted them this week and I was like, why were you guys in our bedroom? <laughs> uh, and, uh, but that's Maya right there. And, uh, and Maya, she started coming to a house group. Graham and Ashley invited her before she ever came to church, knew anything about church. And then she eventually came to church on a Sunday morning after getting involved in a house group. And then she came to a worship night, and she got a prophetic word, and God started to move in her life. And this is how it started with Maya, was just in a living room. And if you don't remember, this is how it's going right now. Maya got baptized a couple months ago. And... Uh, She chose to follow Jesus for a lifetime, and Maya now leads the young adult house group with Graham and Ashley and Jacob. This is why we do this. This is why we do house groups. And we're seeing life change happen on Sunday mornings, we're about to hear about one of those instances, but this is why we do house groups. Because Maya might have never come to sit in the back row of a large room with strangers, but she would come over to a living room and have dinner with her friends. And now, Maya, your life has changed. This is why we do this. And this is why we're choosing a little bit of a different model of church, why we've equated what happens in the living room and what happens in the Sunday morning pew as the same. And and the reason we're choosing to do this is because all the studies, all the experts are saying that this generation is asking two primary questions of the church. Number one... Is God there? And number two, are these people for real? Number one, is God there? Number two, are these people for real? And, and I'm sure the, the smoke and the fog and the lights and all of that's really good. But the two big questions that this generation's asking, is God there and are these people for real? And don't you think that second question is answered better around a table than in a pew? I do. This is why we do this. This is why we do house groups. House groups matter what we do in a living room matters because the church matters. The church is important. The church is changing the world. And the church, one of the avenues we're choosing to lean into is house groups. House groups matter because the church matters. Um, Last week, at the end of Sunday service, I got a text from Karen, who leads our prayer ministry. And it was a bunch of exclamation points. It said, Abigail accepted Christ. And, um, And I, I don't know if you've heard this. If you're a pastor, you know that there's church planting math or there's pastor math. You guys have heard of pastor math? Pastor math is in a room of 100. You look and you're like, oh, about 150 are here. That's pastor math. (laughs) Pastor math also says, like, if you yawn during service, you're like, I see that hand. They got saved today. Two hands. That's pastor math. And so I try to be careful of pastor math. And so when Karen texted me, Abigail got saved... I trust Karen, but I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, Abigail. I didn't give a gospel presentation. I didn't really even have a conversation with anybody that I didn't know last week. Um, So, to be determined. And later that night, we had um, prayer training, and Karen and I were there early with a couple other people. And then in walks a girl I hadn't really talked to, and Karen said, this is Abigail. And Abigail shared her story, and I was like, oh, our church needs to hear that. No gospel presentation, no large moment, just a decision, and so I want to invite up Abigail, and we're friends for a long time, six days now, Um, and I just thought, you know what, this is kind of thrown together last minute, but I want you guys to hear what is happening in your church, not just in a house group, but on a Sunday morning, because Abigail's life has been changed.
1: So like Chris said, I'm sure I don't know most of you, Um, so I'll give you just a little bit of background of who I am. I grew up in a heavily Christian home, a lot of church, um, a lot of head knowledge about God for a lot of years. And I looked from the outside like I was serving God. I was on worship team. I led a nursing home ministry. I discipled girls younger than me. Um, And from the outside, like I said, like it looked like I loved Jesus. But I realized through all of that 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 burden was really heavy and that it was heavy because I was doing it for other people's expectations. And so that I could be enough and that I could love people that I loved well that loved God. But not because I knew Jesus and not because I loved Jesus. And so I left. I left everything. I left God and I, I guess you could say I ran from God. Um, I would describe it like I believe in God and after that I have questions. And it wasn't the kind of questions that I wanted answers for. It was the kind of questions that I avoided any answer to because that might mean I needed to change. And so I pursued nothing crazy, you would say, if you're looking at it as a life without Jesus. But my career, friendships, relationships, you know, I wasn't miserable, but God started working on my heart. And a few months ago, he started just working on me, and I, Kind of came to the conclusion that I believe that God is truth and that what he says is true and that his word is true and that Jesus is real, but I didn't want him. And so for a few months, I was in conscious rejection of God, and that was probably the first time in my life that my life had looked like that. You know, I had gone from looking like I loved Jesus to running from him and not wanting anything to do with what he said to like, yeah, I think you're real, but I don't want you. Um. And I came to City Church during that time where I started realizing that, like, God is real. And I remember just being here and it feeling safe. Like, there was no expectation of what I was supposed to look like or say or be like, but that I could just be and I could listen and I could learn. And God began working on my heart. Um, I went to visit some family in North Carolina. And after a church service on David and Abigail, um, we were talking about where I was at spiritually, if I thought... I had been a believer who loved Jesus who strayed, or if I never loved Jesus. And um, I said to my brother, I said, You know, all those times when I was doing all those things and from the outside it looked good, it was always really heavy. The burden was just heavy. And I said, Jesus said your burden's supposed to be light. I never felt that. And I said, I don't think that it was ever a love for Jesus. I think it was a love for people who loved him. And I had said words a couple years before when I left to my sister. I said, well, if God's really that powerful, I guess he's going to have to chase me. And I didn't just say it once. I said it multiple times. And um, I said to my brother, but I feel like God's chasing me. I think he's pursuing me. And I still didn't surrender. I still went home. Two days later, I went to house group. And... I sat there, and what did J.B. start reading but Matthew 11, where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I had tears streaming down my eyes, but I still didn't surrender. I still went home, and I was like, yeah, God, like, I think you're pursuing me. Came to church on Sunday, and the second song, I think it was, was Goodness of God, where it literally says, your goodness is running after. It's running after me. And I was like, yeah, okay, it's running. (laughs) Like, it's (laughs) going." But I still didn't surrender. And it wasn't until midway through the message, Chris was talking about how while God is a faithful, a loving, and a good God, he also is a God of confrontation who wants our everything. And he was asking everyone to examine, you know, what is your one thing? And he was really talking to believers, but I sat there knowing that it was my everything. It's my control, my fears, that I still wouldn't be enough. Even if I pursued Jesus, like, what if I still don't measure up? And I sat there, and I decided, like, I don't care anymore because I need Jesus, and I'm done running. And so literally just midway through the message, it wasn't anything crazy. You didn't, nobody noticed. You know, I was just sitting there. But I cried out to Jesus, and I surrendered, and I followed him last week. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> It's pretty exciting stuff, and like, it's only been a week, right? It's nothing, like, it's only been a week, but I'm so thankful, and I have peace about some things that I was so anxious about, and um, I'm really thankful for, for that, and I hope, like, I know some of you are sitting here super excited about the story and how God used your church, and you're sitting here excited and happy and just praising God, but I also know that there's a lot of you who are probably searching like I was, and I hope that you feel that this is a safe place to be, just like I did. And I hope that you find Jesus, because he says that if you search for him, you will find him.
0: I had heard that before, uh, at least in that way. Um, in the uh during world war ii there was a guy named dietrich bonhoeffer if you've heard of him and he was a uh, german theologian uh, but he started a kind of a secret seminary during the nazi regime training up pastors and leading churches and um, what i didn't know until recently is that he came from money uh, and he was kind of one of the cultural elite and Germany. And uh, so he moves from Berlin to Finkenwald, uh, no name backwoods uh, during the war and starts this secret seminary. And uh, some friends came out to him and just tried to talk him into his senses because what he was doing was crazy. And they came out and they said, look, this is bad. We understand this is bad, but like you're safe back there. Like you just come back to Berlin with us, like live life back there. Maybe we can do some good from within. Why are you out here with these people? And uh, the story goes that Bonhoeffer didn't say anything, but he got in a boat and he rode across the lake and he climbed up a hill with his friend. He had his friend go with him. And he climbs up a hill, and in the distance you can see, I think it's over Poland, you can see um, a Nazi training camp for the, the army. And so he's standing on this hill with his friend, and he looks back at Finkenwald, his secret seminary, just a few guys there, and then he looks at a, a Nazi uh, army training camp. And then he looks at his friend and he says, this has to be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And if, if we think about that, there's a couple pictures. He's saying this group of men, that's the men at Finkenwald, the, the future church of Germany, that has to be stronger than that, which is sort of laughable. Next picture. This little home that they did some of their training in, this has to be stronger than the Third Reich, which honestly, I think is a laughable comment. Except 80 years later, the church is thriving all over the world, and Nazi extremism is now just culturally irrelevant, all but. It's not surprising that this was stronger than that because the church has already triumphed over the Roman brutality of Nero. It's triumphed over the hypocritical religiosity of the 16th century church. It's triumphed over the Marxist atheistic utopia that he tried to introduce to the world. The church has triumphed over the facade of Christianity in the 80s. It's triumphed over the um, moral relativism that we've introduced in the 2000s, and it will triumph over the, over the digital um, loneliness that is in the 2020s. The church is constantly thriving. The church is constantly taking things that should not, it should not take. And here's a bold comment, but I'm, I'm going to make it. Uh, Jesus' church will continue to triumph over any cultural climate, national crisis, Supreme Court case, presidential order, congressional law, nationalic- nationalistic tendency, or economic recession. I just believe that. And the reason I believe that is because, and stick with me here, is because... The church of Jesus has already triumphed over every single political turmoil, pastoral failure, impure pursuit, premeditated attack, social parameter, progressive theology, presidential candidate, persecution, pandemic, plight, or plague. The church has triumphed over all of them. So this thing, this thing will be stronger than that thing. This thing is stronger than that thing. This thing is a big deal. Here's why this thing is a big deal. Here's why this thing is worth investing in. This little thing right here is because this thing's a big deal. This is a big deal because this is a big deal. And this big deal has been triumphing for 2,000 years over every single attack of the enemy. This thing will prevail. Because 2,000 years ago, a guy, uh, just a carpenter, said this. He said, this thing, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This thing, the gates of hell can't come against it. And if you try to continue to come against this thing... It will almost laughably fail every single time because this is stronger than that. This thing matters because this thing matters. This thing is strong because that thing is strong. This thing is strong because he is strong. And this thing will not stop moving or growing or loving for another 2,000 years, and it hasn't stopped for the past 2,000 years because Jesus loves his church. And the gates of hell, he said this, not me, he said this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They have no chance. Because this thing is strong, and it worked for Bonhoeffer, and we're going to assume it's going to work for us, that this thing will beat that thing. This thing will be stronger than that because Jesus loves his church, and we want to love what Jesus loves. So we will continue to invest in this thing because it will change that thing out there. Let's worship.